Well, my name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to be bringing the word today. And inside your program, there's a message note sheet. Feel free, grab that, pull that out. And as we jump in, I want to take you back uh, to when I was in college. I was attending Biola University. It's in La Mirada, and it's a Christian school out there. And I was, I was studying. I was considering going into ministry at the time. I had, before I'd even gone to college there, I was working at Rocky Peak. I was serving as an intern in the middle school department. So I was interning at junior high. I was working at another church um, during my time at Biola, and uh, I was interning out there. And I'm also getting all of this great Bible training. So I'm getting formal education in, in Bible. So I'm hungry. I'm ready to give this stuff away. I'm getting more than I can even give out. I'm ready to just yeah, I'd love to share that with somebody. And so I hear of a need that comes up, and it's a, uh, a Christian camp's going to be happening. They're short on counselors for a high school camp. I'm like, well, sign me up. I'll, I'm there. So I sign up for this camp. Um, I go to this camp. We have this staff meeting, and we pray um, for the week. And as we're there praying, all the students had arrived. So they got there, and they had already gotten into their cabin. So we broke. I was going to go meet these guys for the first time. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty hungry because I'm ready to dump all my great knowledge on these students. So as I walk in, I'm approaching the cabin and my heart begins to sink because, especially for one of these students, because I can already tell it's going to be a rough week. One of their bags, it's, it's like it's all over the ground. Their clothes have been strewn all through the dirt out front. So my heart's already kind of sunk for or someone's getting picked on right now. So as I'm walking close, I, get, I start to notice something. I recognize that bag. That is my shirt. Those are my clothes. My bag and clothes had been strewn all over. There is a note on the door that says, counselor kicked out. That is no joke. Um, now that's how it just was starting out. Yeah, do you think anybody owned up to that? Not a chance. Uh, do you think any of them were ready to have any spiritual conversations those nights? Not a chance. I hit a wall. I was like so hungry, ready to go for this. I hit a wall and had no idea what to do. I was completely humbled by that experience. Have you ever overestimated yourself, been humbled by something? Um, there's something healthy and we all need that. And today's story, we are, we are continuing on in a story in the book of Mark. And I will catch you up to speed, but in this story is a a really humbling moment for the closest followers of Jesus. Um, In the book of Mark, it lays out the life and story of Jesus. It's a three-part trilogy, basically, in this book. And we're on the very tail end of this trilogy. And at the tail end of the trilogy, the book is building to a high point And it's all leading up to the coming crucifixion of Jesus. And you got to understand, for Jesus, he knows he will be physically gone from the earth. But he has a job. He needs to build and train up his disciples to carry on the mission so that when he's gone, they can carry on. And the mission continues. So he is investing into them, pouring into them. We are now at the very final hours of the life of Jesus. They're just finishing up the Passover. At the Passover, the very last meal he has with his disciples on the earth. At this meal, Jesus is laying out that he is the substitutionary sacrifice for all sin. All those Old Testament pictures where innocent lambs would be slaughtered, a picture that blood had to be spilled for the remission of sin. Ultimately, one day, there would be an ultimate sacrifice 
an ultimate gift. And the gift would be God himself being the perfect sacrifice to offer his life for sin. And Jesus identifies himself at that time of Passover that he himself is the one who's the ultimate sacrificial lamb. And he's about to go to the slaughter. This meal is closing out. And as that meal closes out, they mostly sang or sung a a final song, the final Hillel song, and it's Psalms 115 to 118. So this dinner ends in this intimate way with a song being sung. And as the sound of that end, you they leave and they go to the east of the Kidron Valley and they make their way to a very familiar place, the Mount of Olives, where Jesus will have a final prayer with his father. In this point in the book of Mark, it's like if you're watching this on a big screen, it's like the camera would zoom in, and it would now, you'd see all the disciples and Jesus leaving, and they're going to the Mount of Olives, and you have to understand emotionally where these guys are at, they're in full shock because Jesus has already laid out The fact that one of their own, Judas, would go and betray Jesus to his enemies. So they're shocked. They're very confused. Jesus is saying things like, where I'm going, you cannot come. Their hearts are heavy. There's all this emotion. They're probably walking in a daze. They cannot even fully take in what's going on. And then Jesus... Drops another bombshell. And basically, he gives them a prediction that they will all fall away. If you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 27. And let's enter this conversation with Peter and Jesus and the disciples all around. Verse 27 says, You will all fall away. The original language, this verb, is scandalizo. And what we don't catch in the English is this. This is a passive verb. What what that means is, this falling away is not a deliberate defection. It's more of a, it has a passive sense. It's more of a lapse rather than a rebellion. The idea that when outside pressure hits, they crumble. There's a falling away. Jesus now quotes an Old Testament passage in the book of Zechariah. It goes on and says, Jesus told them, quote, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This this quote from Zechariah chapter 13 verse 7, Jesus is quoting that because this Old Testament prophecy was pointing to the fact that there would be an ultimate coming king, a Messiah who would lay his life down. Jesus is quoting that as the fulfillment of that. There's also an insight in this Old Testament prophecy that when, this, when the Messiah is struck down, his followers will scatter. Jesus is forewarning them, it's going to happen. They are going to scatter. They are going to run. 
This brings divine authority to what Jesus is saying. In Mark 14, if you read it at surface level, it really feels like it's everything falling apart. One of his closest disciples is betraying him. You've got all his other inner circle, they're falling away. They're going to start abandoning at the last hours. So it looks like Jesus' mission feels like it's beginning to fail. Because his mission is entrusting them to carry on the mission. But they're turning away. And then Jesus links this to an Old Testament passage. And Jesus knows full well that what is taking place is God-designed. God knows what's going on. He knew they would fall away. And in spite of this, Jesus is literally fulfilling his mission. There is a holy rescue operation at play. And it is playing out. He is not surprised by the cross. He's not caught off guard by it. He knows full well what he's about to do. This conversation goes on, and I want you to catch something, that Jesus, as the great shepherd, is now going to start speaking some hope to his disciples. He just dropped a bombshell. He just said, I'm rising again from the dead. It's the fifth time he's predicted this. Peter can hardly even catch what's going on. His emotions are all over the place. And even Jesus said this, verse 28, but after I have risen, there it is, predicting his rise, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. So what Jesus is discussing right now, he says, listen, I'm going to die. I'm coming back. I will rise. And he just told him, you're going to fall, but catch this. Your hometown's Galilee. Remember where I first called you? I will meet you there again. I will regather you. Even when they're about to turn on him, he's shepherding them. That is amazing. It's truly amazing. They don't fully get it. Peter will not accept it. Verse 29. Peter declared, well, even if all fall away. And who's he referring to, you think? He's standing with all his buddies right there, the other disciples. Even if they all fall away, I'm not falling away. What a punk, right? Uh, Is he defending them? No. Is he defending himself? Absolutely. He's like, I I know I could imagine they're the ones that would fall. But listen, I'm Peter. I'm the one who jumps out of the boat and walks on water. Yeah, remember me? I'm the guy. There's not a chance in his mind that he will be the guy that's going down. He says, no way. Even if all fall away, I will not. And so Jesus gives him a dose of reality. Verse 30. Jesus starts by saying this. Truly I tell you. Now can I just give you insight here? When Jesus, who never lies, start by saying truly, that's like an exclamation point. Like, now listen. Truly I tell you. Jesus answered today. Yes, tonight. Before the rooster crows twice. You yourself will disown me three times. Peter's are what Jesus is declaring to Peter. Not only you're going to fall, it is not just certain that you will fall, it is imminent. I will even give you warning signs as you're doing it, and you will still fall. You're a lot weaker than you'd ever imagine. In spite of two warnings. Peter hears this and catches this. He doesn't buy it. He's not going there. Verse 31. Peter insisted emphatically. I love another translation said, was saying vehemently. 
So, you know, he's got to be shouting, there's no way. I'm not doing it. This is not me. In fact, he goes on to say, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. What's his heart? He, and trust me, this is a good chance because if you associate with Jesus at this point, in these hours, he's about to go to the cross. Great chance you're going with him. It's very easy to stand up and say, Jesus, I'm with you. I'm all in until you're faced with somebody who could turn you in. That's when the real pressure hits. And catch this, verse 31 ends by saying, and all the others said the same. They hear Peter going, no way, I'm not going down. And they're like, yeah, me too. I'm standing with you. I'll die. I don't care what it takes. And Jesus standing there knowing full well what will happen, it's really a sad and pathetic scene because he knows within hours they will all fall. Peter had no idea how weak he was. They, the others did not either. What, when it talks about all of them falling, there is no guilt by association in Scripture. That's what Mark is laying out. They're all responsible for their own actions. They all do fall. They all confess their allegiance. All protested that this would never happen. All of them would become untrue. And all of them flee. One of the authenticating aspects of the Bible is that it never pulls its punches when it discusses the great heroes of the faith. These are the leaders of the movement. It's a pathetic scene. The Bible does not sugarcoat it. It is actually an authenticating aspect of the Bible. Hudson Taylor, famous missionary, said this, All God's giants have been weak men. There's a sense that anybody who's done anything great, there's some kind of weakness that's there. Your outline says this, Believe it or not, two predictable realities. What do we take away from this discussion? Here's the first thing. Number one. We tend to overestimate our strength. We tend to overestimate our strength. The whole point of the text is that they're so much weaker than they could ever imagine. Jesus declaring himself the sacrifice for all sin. The sin of the world. What's crazy is that around that table, that sin is still represented. Even by his closest followers. He is not just dying for all the sins of the world. It's not just like Pilate's fault or the Jewish leader's fault that Jesus is being crucified. It is even the sins of those of his inner circle. It is Peter. It is James. It is John. It is all the other disciples. It is you and it is me. We're actually all so much weaker than we could ever imagine. And we overestimate our strength. That may not feel like something that's true. This is not so much about what we have already done. It's about what we would do with the right circumstances, the right pressure, the right opportunity. Our weakness would be exposed. We could fall. Maybe you don't see that. 
there's a scripture that gives a warning. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. It'll show up on your screen. It says this, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. I have a question. How many of you have known someone who has been a spiritual giant, someone who's really strong, and they've had a major fall? Raise your hand. Just curious how many people in this room. You see that? Almost everybody. You guess they'd fall. They didn't probably think they'd fall. We're all vulnerable. You know, as a police officer, we have routine safety precautions. There are things that you do to try and stay safe, put you at a tactical advantage. When you go on a stop, you go what's called code six. It just means you're going to let them know where you're at in case you need help. It's a safety precaution. When you get out and you're going to find a spot to be standing and talking to somebody or on a traffic stop where you're going to be, you find a position of advantage. You look for concealment or cover. So if it goes sideways, you have some kind of advantage. You're always going to talk to somebody with your, your uh, gun leg back, so it's harder to reach for. Uh, you're going to watch people's hands. You're not going to necessarily rush into a situation. You will assess it as much as you can before going into it. Basic stuff. Everybody's trained. And you re- you, this is built on routine. We could go on and on on those. There's safety precautions. Now, the reason I share that with you is because Scripture is full of spiritual safety precautions. There's things that we are called to do to safeguard us. And guess why Scripture is full of these? Because we're all weaker than we could imagine. We really are. And so I want to I share a few of these safety precautions. Especially if you're thinking, well... This, you may not feel like you're really strong, but what I want to ask you is, are you acting like you're strong? And you act like you're strong when you begin to ignore scriptural precautions. It says things like this in Ephesians 6. Put on the full armor of God. Well, that's pretty crazy. God doesn't say just some of the armor. Full armor. Why? Because we need help. Outside of ourselves, Be alert. Always keep on praying. Always keep on praying. Why? Because you need help outside of yourself. You're declaring your dependence on God. You don't want to live independent of him. He wants independence on him. Take every thought captive. Make it obedient to Christ. we got to even think about what we think about. He says things like flee immorality. Don't walk, run. Not even a hint of sexual immorality, impurity, greed. He says don't even have a hint of it. Bad company corrupts good character. Talks about your inner circle. Not that you don't hang out with anybody, because we're all in some ways corrupt, right? But there's a place where you shape that. Don't stop meeting together in Hebrews 10. Why? Because no matter who you are, pastors included, we need other people, right? These are all, and I could go on and on and on. They're just safety precautions all through Scripture. There's a sense when we begin to pull back from those, we are declaring that we 
believe that we're stronger than we are. We overestimate our strength. That's why Proverbs 16, verse 18, it says this, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The more self-confident we are in our own strength, in our own power, the less God-dependent we are. The less God-dependent we are, the more careless we get, and we're vulnerable for a fall. There's only one solution to this. It's in Ephesians chapter 6, and it's verse 10. And it says this, you'll see it on the screen. Finally, be strong, what's the next phrase? In the Lord. And in his mighty power. There is no strength in ourselves. So the only protection from a fall is utter, complete dependence on God and his power. Because our power will fail. We are weaker than we can ever imagine. You see this story play out in the Old Testament with the people of Israel. They were God's chosen people to be representatives of the grace of God to the world. And they saw the supernatural hand of God at work all the time. They had an amazing supernatural heritage. They saw the power of God left and right. God would also warn them, be careful. Cut these things out. Don't live too close to these enemies of God. Why? Because you'll start adopting their attitudes, their behaviors. They don't just go close to the line. They begin to cross the line, start marrying into it. Now they're shocked that they're giving in. They thought they'd never fall. The next thing you know, they fall. The book of Judges, it's like this cycle over and over. They got, they, instead of running from the line, they began flirting with the line. They flirted with sin, crossed over, and they fall. It's a tragic story. Fall, judgment, then they get restored. They fall again. It is a picture of you and me. Because Scripture's always laying out the fact that we tend to get overconfident in our own strength. There's two reasons why we tend to do this. The first one is that there's something within ourselves that is prone to wander. Just like we sang earlier in that song. It's Jeremiah 17 verse 9 and it says this. It says, the heart is deceitful above all or beyond cure. Above all things and beyond cure. And who can understand it? There's an old way we are used to living before Christ. When you're in Christ, you get a new identity. He'll change you. But we're so used to thinking a certain way. That's why we call it our old nature, but we're so used to it. So you, and there's a deceptive aspect of it. The tricky thing about deception is that it is tricky. It's sneaky. You don't even know when you're deceived. There's something in ourselves. We are not the best discerners of ourselves. There's another reason that we are weaker than we can imagine. It's because we have an enemy dedicated to our fall. Now, as I set this up, I want you to take your Bible and turn to Luke 22. I'm going to look at a couple verses in here. And let me tell you what you're looking at. This is a parallel passage to this Mark 14 passage. That means that it is telling you about the very same conversation, same story with Jesus. It's going to give a little more nuance to it. 
And there's a very interesting insight in this passage. In 22, verse 31, it says this, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. He's calling Peter Simon. And what's it say? Satan's asked to sift all of you as wheat. There is a real spiritual enemy. There are dark angels. They fell away from God. They have been judged. They have been defeated, not yet destroyed. And they are alive and they are active. They hate God. They hate you because you love God. They are dedicated to your destruction. They have studied humanity for thousands of years. They are good at what they do. They know your name. They know your weakness. They know your vulnerabilities. They will always be looking for the weakness in the fence. And they will find it and push on it. Their attacks are generally very subtle. Just like the attack on Peter in Matthew 16, where Jesus is talking to Peter, and Peter says, Jesus, there's got to be a different way. You don't need to suffer and die. And Jesus knows that that is a lie. Not even a lie from Peter. It is being fed to him by the enemy. The lie is that the Messiah does not need to come and pay the price for sin. And Jesus knows full well. So in a conversation with Peter, Jesus looks at Peter, addresses Satan, and says, get behind me, Satan. A fascinating little glimpse about how spiritual attack works. It usually works in attack in our mind, and it's in the form of a lie. All the thoughts that you have are not necessarily even your thoughts. There's temptation and there are attacks. That says why it says, watch out for flaming arrows and darts. Take your thoughts captive. We are prone to wander on our own. We have a spiritual enemy dedicated to our destruction. And scripture is full of warnings. We all tend to overestimate our strength. Right? Second thing to take away. Number two, we tend to underestimate God's grace. We tend to underestimate God's grace. Um, what is crazy, even in this passage, when they're about to fall, they're turning away, all this craziness is going on, a ray of hope shines right through this thing. Um, before Peter even falls, Jesus is planning his future. Grace is a very hard concept to teach on. It just is. I cannot wrap my head around it. It's hard for any of us to believe it. That's why we have to always hear it. Romans 15, 7 says this. Note it's going to declare that even at our worst, we are accepted. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. In spite of all of your past sin, and catch this, in spite of all of your future sin, that's crazy, gives you a picture that God is outside of time, knows end from beginning, he sees it all, 
He is never caught off guard. When we choose on our own to fall, he's not caught off guard. And he literally will plan around it and plan your future. The Old Testament, it gives amazing pictures of the power of God and the justice of God. You even see when God delivered the Ten Commandments to Moses on this mountain, and like there's very strict restrictions. People could not approach that mountain, touch the mountain, you're dead. Don't touch the Ark of the Covenant, dead. There's a justice and holiness aspect of God and power. And God's demonstrated his power to the enemies of Israel a lot. But there's another thing. Moses asked one time, he says, God, show me your glory. I want to see it. And this is so fascinating. you got to picture this. Who knows? Thunder, lightning, craziness going on around. And then God shows Moses the truest aspect of his character and who he is. It's Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. You can read it on the screen. It says, and he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord. The Lord. Look at the first word God reveals about himself. The compassionate and gracious God. As lightning, you know. And in the midst of his power, the compassionate and the gracious God, slow to anger, abounding. I love that word. Abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. God is not distant. God is not disinterested. God is not demanding. He is not stern. God is not impatient. God is not condemning. God's grace is greater than your sin. It's greater than that. Do you know that your failure, my failure, will not scuttle the work and the kingdom of God? God chooses to use us. He is not dependent on us. He can even take our failures and turn those around. That's the grace of God. When he's looking at Peter and says, listen, I'm going to rise. But after, I'll regather you. That is grace of God in action. After they fall, he will be there. Now, if you're still in that passage in Luke 22, Jesus prayed a prophetic prayer, a predictive prayer about Peter's future. This is that parallel passage. Look at verse 31 and 2 again. It says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. And then verse 32 it says, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Now catch it. He hasn't even fallen yet. And when you have turned back, go strengthen your brothers. That is a prophetic prayer. He tells them, you're going to fall, you'll be returned, I will restore you, and I will not just restore you, I will increase your ministry, you go strengthen your brothers. That is grace of God 
that is greater than your sin. I know you and I love you. I know you're going to fall. I will be there when you fall. I will purify you after your fall. I will recommission you and I will increase your ministry. I can't explain that. But aren't you glad? That was good news. Go strengthen your brothers. God has an ability to see you in your present and in your future simultaneously. This is why he doesn't get hung up on your issues of sin. He knows who he's creating you to be. Peter's failure does something. He begins to realize how dependent on God he truly is. And it becomes a point of ministry to his other brothers. He strengthens his brothers. And you see this play out, especially through the book of Acts and on. You've seen this, haven't you? If you're here at Easter, you saw this amazing video testimony of Jeremy and his, how his crazy past is now being turned around as a point of ministry. We've seen this play out so many times, haven't we? God loves to do that. It is a kind of grace that loves us before we fall. It loves us when we fall, and it redeems us after we fall. That's the grace of God. That's why Romans 5.20 says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That's a great verse, isn't it? This is hard for all of us. Because there is a tendency for all of us to define ourselves by our failure, by our sin. Because you may have grown up with people who defined you like that as well. Do you know the character of God is amazing? He never holds back and doesn't show us our sin. But he is not stuck on it and he does not define us by it. That's why when it says you're a believer, it says you once were this. But now you're this. When you look at Peter, who is hot and cold all over, I'm with Jesus, falling away. Hey, I'm jumping and walking out water. I'm sinking. This is Peter. And he becomes a stabilizing force. You have Moses. When God says, hey, touch that rock. He gets mad and he smacks the rock. He's got an anger issue. But he becomes the one that scripture declared was the meekest person to ever live. The grace of God is greater than your sin. It could actually turn it around and become a point. Your weakness is turned to strength. That is crazy. God's grace is greater than our sin. It is greater than Satan and his demonic kingdom. That's why Jesus can declare to Peter at Caesarea Philippi, I will build my church and even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Good news, right? We tend to underestimate God's grace. So what do we do with this? Embracing reality. Let's take this home. Two questions for you. Two questions. Number one. Here's the first question to ask yourself. What can I not see in me? What can I not see in me? Have you ever been talking to someone and you go like to the restroom and you notice you're like, you've had food on your face. Like they never said anything. They're just laughing. Oh yeah, like nothing's wrong. He's like, why didn't they tell me you've got food on my face? There are times that we've got like food all over our face and we need someone to tell us about it. We can't see it. 
When we come before God, he sees it. Our sin is like our food on our face. He is a good father. What's he want to do? Clean you off so he can see you for who you really are. Psalm 19 declares this, but who can discern their own errors? Who can do that? We need help to see what we cannot see in me. I'll give you three questions to begin to see things like the Lord sees. The first one is we, we need scripture. It's a, we need something outside of ourselves to show us what we cannot see. Scripture is a great one. So you just say, am I ignoring any safety precautions? So when I went through those before, I'll just mention a couple of them again. It says, be alert and always keep on praying. How's your prayer life? How is it? Prayer has an amazing, does something amazing. You are declaring that you're totally dependent. You don't want to live independent. You want to live totally dependent. That's where your power is. That's where you're saying, finally in the Lord, I'll be strong in you because I'm weak on my own. That is the place of power. When that begins to fall, you're walking more independent. You are weaker. Take every thought captive. Make it obedient to Christ. You are not guilty and responsible for every crazy temptation or thought that comes into your mind. You don't have to confess that. If the enemy wants to throw things at you, that's fine. It's what you do with them that you have to pay attention to. If a temptation hits you, a crazy, bizarre thought comes in there, impure thought, crazy thought, whatever. You reject it, and you move on. You begin to flirt with it, run with it, now you're responsible. If you could play out your thought life for others to see, are you taking your thoughts captive? It says, not even a hint of sexual immorality, impurity, or greed in Ephesians 5. Is there a hint of it? Do you have best practices? I meet with a lot of people as a pastor, men and women. I have safety precautions. There's always people around when I'm meeting with somebody. So I have a window on my door. Got different things. People can see. Occasionally, if I have to meet off-site, and it's someone of the opposite gender, there's going to be someone at a table next to me or right across. I don't go alone. Can I tell you something? I don't even feel particularly vulnerable in that. I love my wife. We've never had an issue with any of that. It's just a common practice. We do. Do you have precautions on social media? Who you talk to? How much you share? I don't ever want to have another woman in my life that I'm emotionally closer to than my wife. What about travel accountability? How do you do that? Another one in Hebrews 10, it says, don't stop meeting together. How's your community life? Are people allowed in? Bad company corrupts good character. That's in 1 Corinthians 15. That doesn't mean to isolate yourself and be a hermit. In fact, we're called to go love them. Jesus went after them all the time. This deals with your inner circle. The closest people to you are absolutely critical. 
Who's your inner circle? Are you even pursuing people that will encourage the right things? Scripture's a great test to say, what can I not see in me? Another one is just check your attitudes. Are you thinking like a lone ranger? I'm not going to fall. I can get close to the line. I won't cross it. That's danger zone. I want to give a particular warning to certain people. Gifted people. Gifted people often tend to think that they're gifted, they're strong enough, they don't need to follow it. Do you teach? Be warned. I teach. I'm not above it. You sing? That's great. Are you a great leader wherever you're at? You're not above it. Great Bible knowledge is not just a protection. It's how you apply it is key. doesn't matter if you know the original languages. We are weak. Have you had amazing supernatural experiences? So did the children of Israel. Do you have an amazing spiritual heritage in your family? Awesome. The disciples were discipled by Jesus. They fell. Are you catching it? One more way to say, what can I not see in me? Just ask Jesus. Psalm 19 says, who can discern their own error? What this is inferring is that only God can infer or can show you your own error. We can't see it on our own. This is where our secret place with God comes into play. Our personal time with God, our walk with God. Part of our time with God is is being quiet and listening. Asking, let him show you what he wants you to see. A CEO of a major firm, he once confessed this. I've got a banker to keep me solvent, a lawyer to keep me legal, and a doctor to keep me healthy. But I have no one to help assess my spiritual condition. I'd never thought about such a thing, a spiritual audit. On the screen, I want you to look at this quote. It talks about your prayer life. Prayer demands a relationship in which you allow someone other than yourself to enter into the very center of your being. To see there what you would rather leave in darkness. And to touch there what you would rather leave untouched. In John chapter 15, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We can't give ourselves our own audit. We need God. We can't live on our own strength. We need him. And he's there. Let me tell you what you're going to find. A lot of people are freaked out to just be quiet and let God show you. You know the character of God. You heard it earlier. God, when he shows you your sin, he will not rub your nose in it. He does not dwell on it. He will show it to you so you can confess it. And you know what he does? He cleans it off and then he shows you who you really are. That's a God you want to run to, isn't it? This is why the grace of God is compelling. It is drawing people. The lie is that you have a stern father. You do not. It is grace-filled. It is tender. It's truly humbling and ultimately freeing. What can I not see in me? 
Do not hold back on asking that question. It is your path to freedom. Number two, what does Jesus see I will be? I want to ask you this. Do you define yourself by your sin? By your fall? That I can just say that is one of the most unbiblical things you could ever do in Christ. Apart from Jesus, all we have is what we do. In Jesus, we have what he has. He paid the price. That's why I would encourage anybody in this room to give your life to Christ. You say, you paid the price. You paid for my sin. I need it. I give you. I confess it. Our truest identity is not our sin. He paid for that. Your truest identity is not your addiction. He paid for that. Your identity is what he calls you to be. You're a son. You're a daughter. That's why every epistle, when you look at, it does not start by saying, and to the sinners at this city. It says to the saints. These are saints who are still learning how to live out their grace of God, still struggle with sin, but God is speaking their truest identity. In my sight, because of Jesus, you are saints, and I am cleaning you off. And you have power to walk free. The power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. You don't have to keep walking in it. I will speak your truest identity to you. Don't define yourself by your sin. There's something humbling when we confess and let Jesus show you what, what's really there, the dark side that we have. It is humbling and it is something you only do with your closest friends. Share your dark secrets. Jesus, when he wants to do a major work, always works with his friends. He won't move unless he has a close friend. Wouldn't do the flood without Moses, who learned to listen and walk with him. For Joseph, went in a pit and had to learn all these crazy lessons, was humbled, but became a man who walked with God. Then God could do something great through him. A Samuel, who learned to listen to the voice of God as a kid could then be used to test the heart of a king and be a director for the nation of Israel spiritually. God looks for friends who they can be totally honest about all those things. And he will speak your true son identity back to you. For Peter, he had this amazing future and God declared it. And Peter ultimately became that. If God can do this with Peter and all the others, can he do it with you? This is so amazing. This is why I love this stuff. I don't care what you came in here with. How you define yourself or others have labeled you. If you give your life to Christ, if you're in Jesus, he defines and labels you. If you're suffering painful consequences from sin, trust me, God can still take your life and turn it around. Take your weakness and turn it to strength. I want you to catch something. Wasn't it powerful to hear how Jesus prayed for Peter and told him his future? Guess what? Guess who Jesus is also praying for? You. How do I know? Romans 8. Look on the screen. Verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, was raised to life. He's at the right hand of God. And is also interceding for us. Would you love to hear that prayer? 
You know when you get an insight how Jesus prays, we already read it. He's praying for your future. That you'd become who he's calling you to be. He is not limited by your failure, and he is not stuck on it. He's living for your future and calling it out. That's why 1 Corinthians one twenty seven says, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. How many of you are excited about that verse? Isn't that a great verse? Remember I told you at the beginning of this that I had this crazy camp experience. I was totally humbled by that. I really was. Something changed in me. You want to know what it was? I now had desperation. I had no clue what to do. What changed is how I prayed. I was totally humbled. I had to gather other people and say, you gotta, I don't even know what to do. I cannot break through. And I've got like four more days. And I gathered with other people. I changed. I mean, my prayers were just different. I was totally humbled. They did, could care less about any Bible knowledge I had. And we prayed. By an act of God, all but two of those kids came to Christ by the end of that week. And I can just say, by the grace of God. I don't, it's, just, it's truly phenomenal what he did. But God was doing something with me as well. What a great early lesson in ministry. I needed strength. I needed it. Hebrews 11 has this little quote at the very end after it goes through an amazing litany of all these different amazing characters of Scripture, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and it goes on, and it tells some of the amazing things that they did, but it says this, whose weakness was turned to strength, like Moses becoming the meekest man who ever lived. And think of Peter. How many times did he deny Christ? Three. Strike one, two, three. The guy that said, I'll never do it. They'll do it. The hot and cold, up and down. It is Peter, when you read through the book of Acts, is one of the most stabilizing figures. When he is arrested for talking about Jesus after Jesus has risen, he stands before the ruling council, very one that sentenced Jesus to death, and without blinking, declares, as an eyewitness, this is what I saw, this is what I know, this is who Jesus truly is, and I will not stop saying it. They don't know what to do with him. They throw him in jail, an angel gets him out. Awesome. So he does it again. They arrest him, throw him in jail. Peter is not backing down. Peter, who is so wishy-washy, hot than cold, becomes a stabilizing force. Two months after his great fall, he preaches a sermon, 3,000 people come to Christ. That is the grace of God. Peter lives a life consistently, does not defect from Jesus. At the end of his life, persecution hits. They arrest him. They're finally going to take him out. They're going to kill him. And church history reports that he was crucified and Peter did not run from that. In fact, do you know what he said? I am not worthy to be crucified like my Savior. And he requested to be crucified upside down. And they did it. That's a very different Peter. Whose weakness was turned to strength. And Jesus saw it and he called it out. And he's doing that for you today too. Let's pray.
You know, it's like, what, how do you respond to a message like this? How do you do that? You know, as our worship team comes out, there's one thing that we want to do today. And we want to just come before God. And we want to ask him those two questions. Now listen, we're not even taking an offering right now. We're going to just let one song just time to respond because it's that important. We'll do an offering after this song. But what we're going to ask God is just this. Lord, you know me. You totally know me. What can I not see in me? What is it? Show me. When he shows you dark sides, confess it. If you've not even given your life to Christ, surrender it to him now. But when he shows you that, you confess it. You're also saying, Lord, show me. What do you see in me that I will be? What are you creating me to be? And God may just begin to give you glimpses of how he would love to turn your weakness to strength and use it to increase your ministry. He will show you your truest identity. Let's just give him space. So Jesus, would you do that? Would you do it? We're looking to you. The God who pursues, pursue us now, Lord. Show us what I cannot see in me. And please show us, Lord, what do you see that I will be? Did you hear yourself? Did you hear how our church is responding? That is the grace of God. You know, we're singing like a redeemed people. Aren't you glad you came today? Aren't you glad? That's so awesome. Thank you guys also, Ray, Lauren, the rest of the team for leading us. It's powerful. You know, um, as you leave, uh, reminder of a couple quick things. One, uh, go to your closets. Let's pack some things up. Let's help the mission that burned down. Think of that this week. Uh, do drop-offs next week. The truck will be out there. Um, it's Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Honor your moms. Love them well today. Just enjoy time with family if they're here. And just honor their memory if they're not. Okay? And let me just ask God to release a powerful blessing over you before you leave. How many of you want that? Sound good? All right. I do too. So may the very grace of God... The very power that raised Jesus from the dead infuse your life as he promised. May he tenderly show you what he wants to clean off. And may the grace of God give you glimpses of who you are ultimately becoming so that you could run in it and be used for his kingdom in even more powerful ways. God bless you guys. Pastor Mike and the whole team that's in Israel are planned to be back next week, so it's going to be a great service. I'd invite you to come out. Have a great weekend. We'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.